Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Kevin Fitzgerald, a Denver native and a true Renaissance man. He's had a fantastic career in veterinary medicine for over a quarter century. He's been a staple of the stand-up comedy scene, but less visible has been his background as a security specialist, touring with everyone from the Rolling Stones and the Who to Willie Nelson and the Wu-Tang Clan. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, G. So you're an Irish Catholic kid from Denver. That's the short form. That's right. There's an Irish Catholic community here. And in the 50s, when we grew up, it meant something. There were parts of Denver that were heavily Italian, North Denver, Hispanic, the black community around Five Points. But the Irish people stuck together, too. When their family came from Ireland, they'd stay with people that were already established and then find them jobs. That's how it worked. Like stayed with like. Didn't mix that much. We had a Jewish family that lived next to us, and they were Hasidic people. And my friend Earl Stein, his dad was the cook, would make all these wonderful Jewish foods and he'd make these kishkas, which was kind of like a Jewish burrito. He yelled out the back, boys, Papa's made a kishka. When I went home, my father said, why did Mr. Stein announce it had a bowel movement? <laughs> so in our family, Papa's made a kishka, he had to go to the john. You were active in youth boxing, rugby? You do what you know. My uncle was a coach at the 20th Street Gym, so everybody boxed. The Irish people, like many of the immigrant people, they kind of are like in the beginning. They try and establish themselves or do what they can. I remember my grandfather telling me, you have to be better than the other people. They know you're Catholic. And nobody knew, knew you were Catholic, <laughs> but there's that attitude. So your athleticism resulted in a swimming scholarship. See you? Sport they don't even have anymore. You know, Title IX got rid of all the minor sports, baseball and wrestling and swimming. It's the first time you're on an airplane. Pool in Boulder only had five lanes, so in the Big Eight you had to have six lanes to compete. So we had to always go away. So I remember the first time I got on the airplane, we had these corny jackets with a buffalo on it that they rented out to you. For each team, it was traveling. It was an odd number, so I couldn't sit with a teammate or the coach. So I was sitting next to a lady, and I said, how did you get on this plane? She goes, what are you guys, are you a choir from Boulder? No, we're stuntmen. We're FAA stuntmen. <laughs> Don't you know, this plane's going to fly upside down for 30 minutes. They test these planes every 30 days. Strap in there. Give me your glasses. She's about <laughs> 90, going back to see her first great-grandchild. The stewardess comes, she goes, Miss... When are they going to fly the plane upside down? And this big hand came with the coach said, Fitzgerald, come sit with me. So I just sit with him for four years. So you're not going to tell the old women the plane's going to fly upside down, are you? <laughs> no. You found yourself at the sink. Oh, work in the door. Yeah. Well, a buck 39 an hour and a flashlight. But Friday afternoon was nickel beer for sorority girls. So they come in for a buck, they could have 20 beers, and they were on the moon. They'd grab me and go, you're kind of cute. What's your story? And you go, oh, okay. You know. yeah. Boulder was unique back then. The sink was legendary. Uh, the hill was amazing. The, the STP family, they'd all borrow a dog or a baby to beg with. Boulder was like Baghdad. To be a little Irish kid from Denver and get to see Boulder out of the riots. And, but I got a good education there. There were Nobel Prize winners, and so if you wanted to, you could play as hard as you wanted, but if you wanted to study, too, you could do that as well, and I was lucky, and there were some wonderful mentors and professors there. 1969, 
a lot of things changed, including the course of music in general and concerts specifically. Up to that time, it was the pop groups, the top 40 AM radio groups that toured and they filled theaters with shrieking teenagers. But then it evolved into rock culture and consciousness. The music was a thousand watts louder, a thousand times weightier. FM radio changed everything. I remember my mother buying me a record and go, here's a wonderful rock and roll record, and it was the Archies. And I thought, Mom, this isn't, you know, <laughs> this isn't what we listen to. But the power of a generation and the money, people realized that kids would come to concerts, and they didn't realize the power of it for buying records. You remember that announced when a record was going to be released, you could not wait for it, the new Cream record or the new Rolling Stones. So you knew when these albums were going to come out, and you'd go down and wait for them. And albums were albums. They didn't sell music by the song. The album was put together with thought. And you wanted to read the liner notes and the pictures and, and which songs would go next, and it was a different day. Feyline was Barry Fay's company. Fay emerged as a grandiloquent character in the Colorado music scene. What he did was undeniable. Denver had been regarded as a cow town, just a blip on the national music radar screen, and he established Denver as a must-play market. How he did it? could be questioned. The concert industry was kind of run like a cartel back in his heyday before it became corporatized. Denver was his territory. It was his place, like Red Rocks. He got a foot in the door there with the city, got a sweetheart deal, and the rest is history, really. Denver, the flyover, it took a day to get into town from the nearest market, Kansas City to the east, and then another day to get out. To Salt Lake City, which or, wasn't much of a market itself. No. Maybe Phoenix. Bands always toured the east coast because they could do night after night, hitting the college towns. Right. Buffalo to Pittsburgh to Cleveland. Faye had run a club called The Family Dog and then founded Faye Line. And then uh, the Denver Pop Festival in 1969. That was a three-day festival. Woodstock didn't happen until three months later. He needed concert security. This was the first time the question was asked. What happens when 20,000 people get together? Barry was smart about one thing. He knew a cop, a uniformed policeman, couldn't go in the crowd to get a kid. Because no matter what the kid had done, thrown bottles or dropped firecrackers on the people below him, the crowd is on the kid's side. Look at that cops going after that kid. They didn't know that maybe he had a knife or whatever he was doing. And so peer security, T-shirt security, where you had young people... We had a group, for better or worse. They called them the goons and different things. But I learned a lot about human nature and about watching those guys and how you dealt with people. Well, we can't sugarcoat that. It started with the Denver Pop Festival to a degree. Everything going on in the world, civil rights demonstrations and anti-war protests and student strikes. And the Denver Pop Festival set that tone for the rock revolution here in Denver. It was tear gas, violence erupted. Tear gas, Candy and David on stage when it happened. But the police didn't know yet. Over time, the crowd here, the audiences, the audiences of the United States got trained as what they would expect, how to get into a concert. But the police did, too, on how to handle it. Police here had not the best history with the Jethro Tull concert and Aretha Franklin at places at Red Rocks where there had been problems. There was a real black and white thing between generations, and, and there always is to an extent. People make fun of the millennials. I respect people that live a thousand years, you know, <laughs> so, so I, I like the millennials. But the cops were not your friend. Cops are pigs, music is free. That was right? exactly right. But Barry told me, you have an Irish name. 
I can't have a Jew hire an Irish cop. I'm going to have you talk to the police. And so you'd go to these cities and you got to know the police and realize that they're just guys doing a job, going to work and have families and whatever. And, and a lot of them liked the music and they weren't that much older than we were. The majority of people doing security back then. Turned, well, they call them the, the goon squad. You know, the, they were thumping on people with the slightest provocation. Well, you know, there were naughty people, and people got bloody mouths. In the very beginning, you wanted these giant, scary guys, but they wanted trouble, and they were in trouble. They were troubled people, and not all of them. Some were sweet guys that I still see today, but we had some legendary people. Holy cow, punchaholics, you know, that would <laughs> steal a punch. But as it progressed, it outgrew that. When I worked for the Rolling Stones, it was Jimmy Callahan, the head of security for them, telling me, we're not about bloody mouths. Anybody can do that. We're about no bloody mouths. We don't want lawsuits. Over the course of this tour, three million people into the 70 cities, we want them in safe and have an excellent time and come back. The name of the game in this business is sequel, and we want them back. So we want to make it a nice experience, not this thing where everybody gets punched. You're too modest to take any sort of credit for it, but you were one of the first people to use a psychological approach to... We were bouncers. I mean, yeah, we did the security. I realized that if you talk to them, 99% of the time, you say, look, you know, you could take me. Of course you could. But I'm going to go get three other guys, and you can't take all of us. Are we going to get a policeman? You're going to have breakfast on the county? You're going to go to jail? You've paid for your ticket. you got your nice girlfriend here. Man, sit down. But a lot of times you couldn't. So you could do things like, hey, you know what? This seat where you're in, you won the contest where you get to meet the band. So come on with us right now. And then you'd take him behind the wall, and all of a sudden there's four guys waiting, and get him in an arm bar, and he's outside the thing wondering what the hell happened. <laughs> if the band liked you, they hired you back. You realize that you're not the band. You're doing a job. Take it serious, and you want to do it clean. And it got to be more and more of a science, taking pictures of the crowd in front of the hotel for the Rolling Stones so you could identify a guy that had been in, in that picture the day before in the city before and realize, hey, that guy's following us. That guy was here yesterday in Cleveland. Now we're in Cincinnati. John Lennon's people, that guy stood in front of the Dakota for two weeks. That wouldn't have happened with the Rolling Stones. We would have gone out and shaken them down and you touch him up. Say, hey, what's going on? Oh, how are you doing? It's great to see you again. You were here yesterday. And then figure out if he's got a gun. Well, no, I can stand here. It's the street. Then tell the policeman, you know, of that town, you know, that guy's creepy. We don't know. Go see what he's doing. And then find out. And we took pride in it, in getting people into the places safe. Denver was a step ahead of it because we had so many concerts so quickly and so early here, and we could perfect it and realize you didn't even need that many bouncers if you could do it right and have the right guys and have smart guys. You wanted giant, gentle guys. If stuff happened, they were great, but they wouldn't go out of the way to make a lawsuit or a confrontation. <laughs> In 1969, the Stones were the first act to assemble the rock and roll circus, traveling with lighting and sound equipment that the venues demanded. They booked their own maintenance and publicity and security teams and their own supporting acts. The tour started at Fort Collins. Moby Jim, the most quickly. People were like, is that right? The Stones are playing in Moby Jim? They hadn't played for three years, and they had Mick Taylor with them, and Brian Jones had died, so it was kind of a new day. Getting to work for the Rolling Stones and a tour like that was like running away with a circus. Being a little boy from Denver, you couldn't believe it. But the Stones was like the Marine Corps. 
set people, set per diems. You know, everybody had their own job. And Jagger was very involved and ticket prices and everybody kind of had their own job. Charlie was in charge of the stage and what it looked like. And Barry did many of the first shows of that tour. And Tony Funches and some of the people from Feyline were there. My boss, Tony, God bless him. Tony had a great thing with the kids. He could thump if he needed to. He was a specimen. He looked like LeBron James' big brother. The kid would be naughty and doing stuff, and Tony would grab him by the belt and pull him close and lick his face. <laughs> and he'd say, if you keep doing this bad stuff, the next time I'll bite your face like an apple. Stop being naughty and go sit down. And I always liked that he said, stop being naughty. <laughs> the kid was just such a personal thing. That guy just licked my face. A few years before he died, he came back to Colorado, and he came to the comedy works, and I heard this big laugh, oh, 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 like a Viking. And I go, God, that sounds like Tony. The kid ran in after the show, and he goes, Dr. Fitzgerald, there's a giant black guy in the last row, and he won't pay for his beer, and he said, you'd pay for it. And I said, yeah, and when you said I wouldn't, yeah. I said, he licked your face. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, here, here, here's the money for the bill. <laughs> but Tony was so good with personal things, learning people skills. That's what it was about. It wasn't all about punching. Going back to that Stones gig, B.B. King was the opening act oh, on that tour. There's a great B.B. King story. B.B. King always wore a suit, looked great. When we were kids, we thought it was corny. Well, that's an old black guy in a suit. He was in his 30s when that tour happened. But the way he dressed, he looked kind of like a minister or a black businessman, a banker or something. And these nice suits, beautiful shoes, great belt. He looked sharp. And he got Keith aside and he said, you know, this is a show. And you owe the crowd respect. Performers should dress nicer than the crowd as a sign of respect. And you should up your game. Look how you're dressed. You look like you're going to go out and pick cans up on the highway because <laughs> he's wearing a wife beater or jeans. And after that, Keith always, if you look at him, it's rock and roll clothes, but they're cool. They listen to those old guys. The other one on that tour was Rory Gallagher. Now there's an Irishman with oh, some talent. Man. One of the few Irishmen with some talent. No, there's <laughs> a lot of Irish with talent. My father said they invented the wheelbarrow so the Irish would learn to walk upright. <laughs> well, I can say because I'm Irish, you know. My mother was doing this thing at the school and helping little Spanish children after school, bilingual stuff, trying to teach them English, little migrant kids at the Catholic school. My father came in and goes, you know, Virginia, I think that this bilingual education's for the birds. If English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it should be good enough for these little children. Well, Bill, Jesus didn't speak English. He spoke Aramaic Hebrew. Well, he knew English. After all, he was God and invented all the languages. Jesus, your mother's a wingnut. What the hell? Why don't you run along and get me a beer? <laughs> You ended up doing many tours with the Stones. I always found it interesting. They toured every three years for a while, like clockwork. 69, 72, 75, 78, 81. Bang. What it evolved into, there was advance work, hiring police, the day of show, getting them hotel, port. They figured out how you get them from the airport to the venue, how you could get the people back and forth. And 
at the hotel how you could do some misdirection and tell the press, you know, I was staying at the Marriott by the airport. When you're actually staying somewhere else, it gave you a little time maybe. And then how many floors you needed, put a guy on the floor and rent the whole floor so you didn't have to worry about that. Do the advance with the police. How many police do you need? In the very beginning, they were naughty. You'd get every off-duty policeman in the world going to get the work of the show, and you know you didn't need 180 policemen. The first time I went to Dallas, I went in there. The guy whose name was O'Shea. I was O'Shea. I'm Kevin Fitzgerald from Rolling Stones. How many police do I need? Well, you know, Fitz, I need 180. Well, wait, you knew you needed 30 for parking and 30 for the gates, 60 cops. He needs 180, and you're paying a lot for the police. And so I said, well, you know, Mr. Faye told me I could hire 20 policemen. Oh, Fitz, for God's sake, get on the phone and help me. Help me here. So I pretended I was calling. He came back and he said, well, you know, he said I could hire 40. No, geez, we couldn't get by with 40. You know, give me 100. Give me 100. Well, let me call. He said I could hire 80. And now he's happy. He burned you for 20. And when Faye heard I did that, he just goes, you're my boy. So that was my job. But getting him into the hotel and keeping the people back, the problem was that announced these things on the radio stations. And so you could have three or 4,000 kids in front of a hotel. And then they're breaking into cars and doing vandalism. And then the cops aren't happy with you. And, but when you go to those cities, you get to know the rhythm of that city. And after a while, after a couple of tours, you'd see the same people again and again. That helped a lot. Then the day of the show, my job was the people that we'd hired in that town to do security. Rugby teams and weight room people, or football players from the local college, they'd be in the front behind the barricade and they would get afraid when the lights went on. You had to be there and kind of show, oh no, here's what we do, this is okay. And when the lights go down, the kids jump from the sides of the stadium onto the floor. Their tickets are up on the sides. You can't have the wheelchair people down on the floor because they get knocked out. But in those days, they'd stigmatize them. They'd put them all together up high in the same place. So there's little guys in a wheelchair. He wants to go to the show. He's got some disability, but he wants to be with his buddies. He doesn't want to be with all the other wheelchair people. But every show, Jagger would look from the side and go, where are they? And he meant the wheelchair kids. And I'd say, they're in 323. He'd go, how many chairs? And I'd say, 23 chairs. And I'd get 23 cassette tapes and 23 T-shirts. Then we'd put a towel over his head or a hoodie, get him through the guts of the place. And then he'd jump out right there. And he wouldn't stay and talk, but he'd put a cassette tape and a T-shirt on everybody's lap. Hey, thanks for coming. We couldn't do it without you. And he didn't do it as a photo op. And he didn't tell the press he was doing it. And we did it every show the 25 years I did. And every time we walk back, you go, Kevin, how come we're so lucky? We can never forget how lucky we are. People come to see me sing or you got this big body and thump heads for us. But I never forgot that, that this guy had achieved this thing, but he didn't forget. That was cool. People can say things they want, but there's good things about these people, too. Keith was similarly sweet. He'd play at hospitals on the road. Burn units, go in with a guitar, play for the kids, and not tell anybody who's coming. And then pretty soon, the nurse and everybody would start calling their boyfriends or call the press, and he'd go, okay, now it's time to go, baby. And we'd get out of there. They were good guys. They were happy. There was tensions and stuff, but for the most part... He'd say, man, I got the best job in the world. But yeah, Keith, the coolest guy, when he says something, you listen. At the end of the 78 tour, he goes, you've been with us a long time. Why don't you do something with yourself? This isn't going to last forever. I'm going to be like the flavor of the month. You can't be a bouncer when you're 50. Why don't you go to school? I'll write you a letter. I'll help you. So I came back to Denver. My brother was working for U2, and he picked me up at the airport. I said, Keith told me I got to get a grip on my life. He goes, well, when Keith tells you you got to get a grip on your life, you better do something. He wrote my letter, but it's probably on a wall somewhere. 
So I went to vet school. When you weren't on the road during the summer, you were back here and part of the scene. You eventually ran the security portion of the business. When Tony left, I got it. And yeah. we'd had Mackey and Boulder, and we had Folsom, and we had Kurgan and McNichols and Regis. Wherever Faye put on a concert, we did the security. <laughs> to the Good Earth, which was a club on the Pearl Street Mall in Boulder run by the Freddie Henchy Band. Well, Freddie was our friend. Everybody knew Freddie. Henchy had been in a band called the Henchmen. That's where that name came from. It's a separate band. And he was a gymnast, a dancer, and Freddie had this voice, best voice in Colorado, maybe Mick Manresa or Candy Gibbons, but Freddie's voice. In the beginning, they were soul setters. The drummer was from Guam, a couple of Hispanic guys and other black guys, and then they got some white people in there, but they had gotten popular and had enough panache to put together a club, and so I got to work the door. But the problem was, I went to Freddie one night, I said, Freddie, we have more people on the guest list than we have seats for paying customers you know I, I would, well if somehow you'll find them in and put up folding chairs or you know we, that isn't a good business model you got 150 seats when you got 175 guests you know <laughs> You had known guitarist Tommy Boland since he first played with Zephyr, the great band that emerged out of Colorado in 1969. He had gone on to play with the James Gang and Deep Purple. He also had a solo career. He launched a tour in December 1976 to support his second album, Private Eyes. He was playing support at a Jeff Beck concert in Miami. The first night of the tour, he died in his hotel room. He overdosed, his body ravaged by pretty much every substance. You were on the road with him. I was working for Jeff Beck. Faye was backing him and putting together publicity and money for tours and albums. And Tommy was a Colorado guy. Everybody knew Tommy. You see him on the street in Boulder. On those tours, you would see things and people that had demons or whatever. And some people can't figure out the people around them maybe aren't so healthy. Tommy had been in Miami the week before partying. All these good things had happened. It, it was his turn. He'd gotten some notoriety and Jeff Beck paying attention to you. And so it was just a tragedy. Even when those guys go, you just think, you know, what they could have done. It was a tragic thing. And it put a pall over that tour. I still think on that day in December where I was and what was happening and get ready to go. And then it just was dreadful. Maybe there's not a worse thing than loss of talent. Tommy was a good guy to sit around with. He didn't have a mean bone. So you went out with so many acts. One of the first was Herb Alpert. Herb Alpert was huge. At the time, you forget A&M Records, he's the A. How much security did he need? Not very much. Okay. <laughs> Needed more people to find the bags. Did we lose that one bag? Can you go back to the airport? But he had the Flying Breeder Brothers on A&M Records, and I did that. And what iteration of that band? It was Graham and Chris. They had Mikey Clark Michael Clark drums. on drums, sure. He came to Boulder later. Sneaky Pete playing. And then they had Bernie Ledden play lead guitar. 
So it was the last stages of that group before Graham left. Yes, you I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what to do. And, and you know, you're, you're trying to just, you know, kind of keep people away backstage at hanger honors or watch the stage during the show and make sure they were safe. But as far as getting paid or as far as who's going to feed me, I went to Chris Hillman one time and said, how do I eat? And he goes, well, you just kind of order stuff and put it on the bill. Call room service. I think the bill still must be coming in, you know, because <laughs> you don't know what to order. You go, What's this surf and turf? That looks good. You're not getting a peanut butter sandwich. You didn't have a per diem. Well, I think I'll get two of these. Good. I'd like some ice cream, too. Oh, they have pie, okay? Do you mind if you bring the whole pie? <laughs> Chuck Grant was on that tour, too. It was the two of us. And then we did a lot as partners, different bands. Once we'd worked for the Stones, you'd made your bones kind of. You had some credibility. You worked with Emmylou Harris. Her road manager was Phil Kaufman, the mangler, who right. was maybe the most notorious road manager of all time. He's the one with Graham's body. Went out to the Joshua Tree <laughs> Forest <laughs> yeah. and cremated get, him after get, he stole get, the coffin. Get good high-grade gasoline and we burn <laughs> his body. We don't want him to ping. No, we don't. To be a little boy from Denver and not know music, I couldn't play an instrument or do anything. But through this business, you could see how it progressed and then it changed. By the late 60s, early 70s to the mid-70s, you could see it becoming more and more of a business. How many butts in seats? What else can we sell? And merchandising became a huge thing at the shows. Bootleggers. They put the itinerary of the tour in Rolling Stone or whatever, and so they're there the day before the show setting up their stands outside the stadium. And you're paying concession rights to the city to sell your stuff, but they're not paying anything, so they're outside, and they're not giving the band a cut. And sometimes their T-shirts are nicer than what you're selling. <laughs> they weren't Pakistani things. They were nice Hanes, heavy cotton, and nicer artistry. And, and the kids are coming up to the show already wearing these shirts with the date of the show in that city. And you're like, where'd you get that? Oh, I bought it, you know, behind that building over there. And you go over there, and those guys know that by rights, you can seize their product. So then they'd have guns, and so we needed cops. But sometimes you'd see people that would bootleg their own shows, like Tosh. So you wouldn't have to give anybody a cut. We've got these guys bootlegging. And we go, wait a minute. Isn't that that guy on his tour? You know? <laughs> Chuck Grant was amazing. He's bootlegging his own show. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have to give anybody a cut. When did you first go out with The Who? They hired the Rolling Stones bouncers in 79 after the horrible stuff in Cincinnati. And so we did three farewell tours. <laughs> 80, 82, <laughs> one in 90. And it was a different deal than The Stones. It was a different vibe. Probably my favorite band, really. They never had a number one song. No one knows that great songs and a band that comes across live and doesn't come across on record like that i never understood that how some of these bands were so much better live or the reverse you love the record and live you just go oh this is all done with studio stuff 
You were on the road with Willie Nelson. <laughs> the best ever. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Willie knows every joke. Hey, Kevin, how come Hitler didn't drink tequila? It made him mean. <laughs> you, you know, you know. I mean, you're like, Willie. And he goes, don't you get it, Kev? He's Hitler. He had so many great jokes. Willie was so sweet, just a sweet person, innocent, kind of. And, and been through this hard, long life with this attitude of, you know, it's going to be okay. Why should I worry about it? Would that help? And lived up in Evergreen. Drove down from Evergreen to Red Rocks. <laughs> no identification and no current driver's license and no plates on the car, okay? And no shoes and had got his stage closed at the concert that he's going to wear. And he has to drive up the backstage road and the cop stops and he, well, who are you? Uh, I'm, you know, who? Older policeman. He's never heard of Willie Nelson. He maybe isn't a country fan or doesn't know music. Get out of the car. Where's your driver's license? Oh, well, you know, they got it somewhere. There's no place on this car. A brand new Blazer, Chevy Blazer. Well, get empty your pockets. It's a joint, you know. Well, what? You know? <laughs> and so one of my kids is on the radio. Kev, you're down here. They're arresting Willie. <laughs> so I tell the guy, that's the guy who was playing tonight. Uh, well, yeah, but he doesn't have any. We'll figure it. We'll work it all out. We'll get him a driver's license. We'll get him. In, <laughs> we'll get him a driver's license. You know, we'll get him. I said tomorrow, George Benson's playing, and there's a bus coming from a restaurant. I'm gonna get you and your wife four tickets. And you're gonna be on the bus, and you're gonna come up to the concert, and we're gonna make you a backstage guest, and it's gonna be wonderful. Really? You do that for me? Oh, yeah. This guy's not a problem. <laughs> Willie would look at the crowd every show, and he'd go, "You know, Kevin, 99% of those people aren't with the person that they'd like to be with." And that's why my songs will always be on the jukebox. <laughs> it was just about quality of being a good person. But it was fun working for Willie. You could take any girl you met on the bus. You go to the next city. Yeah, okay, Margaret, why don't you come with me? <laughs> went out with Parliament Funkadelic, George Funk. Clinton's troupe. I was going to work for this other band, Husband and Wife, and they broke up the first night of the show. I called Barry. I was in Cincinnati, and he said, well, can you get to Cleveland? We got another tour going on tomorrow. They need another guy. And so I got to Cleveland. I walked in, and I didn't know George. I didn't know the problem with Funkadelic. And at that time, it was a black experience. White college kids didn't know the P-Funk. George was sitting there in the hotel in the lobby. And I said, I'm looking for George Clinton. I'm the new bouncer. And he goes, oh, they didn't tell us you was white. <laughs> but they were great. They grew guitar players. Eddie Hazel and Michael Hampton and Blackbird McKnight. They just keep coming out. They don't take breaks between the songs. Funny stuff. If you see any of them, where's my money? Or do fries go with that shake? They just had great things they'd say to each other. And they dressed like Arabs or somebody have a wedding dress on. And I remember a diaper. Oh, yeah, the diaper was great and a big pacifier. Yeah, Gary Schotter. There's something good about an older guy in a diaper on stage. <laughs> but the music was great. Bernie Worrell, they called him Da Vinci because he could play anything. You actually did a tour with Wu-Tang Clan. 2001 or 2002, I got a phone call that they wanted. Chuck Grant and I and a couple of the people from the old days, the guy that called us had fired us from Earth, Wind & Fire in 1976 because he thought we were too violent. 
So I said, well, you know, you must have like a bloodbath or something coming. What do you need us for? Wu-Tang was a loose federation of rappers, nine people. RZA, Jizza, Red Man, Method Man. One of them wasn't really in the band, but was there on that tour and was hanging around. Inspector Deck, Ghostface Killer. Uh, that's only seven. Um, it's like naming the dwarves. <laughs> Grouchy, Sneezy, Grumpy. They all had their own entourage. So they all had 15 or 20 people backstage, and there's nine of them. So now you got 200 people backstage. Concessionary, they like locusts. They come in there. <laughs> hey, we need more Perrier here. Well, you just drank 180 bottles. Who's paying for this? And so their security people were getting testy with each other and territorial, and then they said, well, you're going to get rid of everybody, and we're going to hire an outside thing. And they teach their people how to do it. They had this beautiful kid that was their head of security. He played football, a giant black kid, but he's wearing cut-off gloves and a slicker and sunglasses and a hat. It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and he couldn't understand why the cops are always messing with everybody. I said, you're in a gang, right? Well, no, no, I'm not a gangster. I'm not a college graduate. But you dress like a gangster, you see? Then we're going to go and talk to the chief of police today. We wear a tie and walk in, say, hello, I'm Kevin Fitzgerald from the Wu-Tang, and this is $500 for the Widows and Orphans Fund because the Wu-Tang supports the police. Well, Wu-Tang supports the police? Really? Well, that's so nice. <laughs> Who's this guy? Oh, this is Andrew Johnson. He's my assistant. When we left, he, do they have a widow's and orphans? I don't know. They do. But we just gave him $500. <laughs> now when the sound guy gets busted, pot in his pocket, we can go, ah, oh, come on, officer. We tried to show respect. We need that guy. He's the only guy that can run the board. You've always alluded to the Jefferson Airplane as your favorite band from the rock era. The first Jefferson Airplane, Surrealistic Pillow or Volunteers, was great stuff. And they were bigger than life. Gracie Slick was so beautiful, and we were afraid of her. We took her to an interview with a DJ in the morning. you do those things to push the show in the town where they were going to play it. She said, oh, you know, Gracie, you know, the Acid Queen, all this thing. Uh, what's your favorite song? And she said, you know, that little dork, John Duchendorf, he wrote this, Leaving on a Jet Plane. John Denver had written Leaving on a Jet Plane for Peter, Paul, and Mary. And she goes, you know, every time I hear that song, everybody knows somebody leaving on a plane. And so you think, here's the acid queen. She loves certain music, too. They were so talented. Yeah, the live airplane was really something. They played at Balch Field House in Boulder. Yeah. The acid people were in the middle doing acid dancing, calling to the sun. It's the middle of the night. But the speed freaks were on the outside going around like a racetrack, like the Indianapolis <laughs> 500, moving, <laughs> grinding their teeth. So you could tell what was the drug of choice. Different things that happened after the Rolling Stones tour. One time, we still had a month before I had to go back to school. I called up Graham and I said, we got anything? He said, yeah, 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 I got a tour. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. The evangelist, and he needs security. Yeah, he needs a little security, you know. <laughs> the people would sit in the crowd and all of a sudden the spirit would hit them. They'd be talking in tongues and they'd charge the stage. And Ryan just would clothesline these people. And I'd go, no, no, baby. You're supposed to let him up on the stage and get healed. You can't knock him down. No, this guy's crazy. Look at his eyes. I go, no, he's on the real thing, man. Jesus in a clean windshield. But he had an aura, that guy, Billy Graham. And that's when I got converted by that tour to Satanism once I saw that. <laughs> Barry Fay put on the Jamaica World Music Festival in 1982 over Thanksgiving weekend. 
three-day festival in Montego Bay, Jamaica, the Grateful Dead and the B-52s on the first day, Beach Boys and Aretha Franklin on the second, Rick James and the Clash on the third day, plus Jamaican acts like Peter Tosh and Yellow Man were mixed into the bill. A fiasco on every level. It was strange trying to put on a show of that magnitude in a third world country. Barry had friends that had holidayed in Jamaica and said, there's tons of Americans and nothing to do. You should put a show on down there. There's all this music anyway. Reggae was big at the time. Bring your acts down. It was appealing to the American acts who knew about reggae. And, man, a free way to get to Jamaica and be paid. And so I did the advance for that and set it up. It was at the Bob Marley Performing Arts Center, which was a peninsula with a giant Elkar fence from Denver. We're going to be 50-50 partners with the Jamaican government. The Jamaicans are great forgers, so we were worried about forgery with the tickets. And so we didn't release the tickets till the day before the show. Something that the Jamaicans would know. It was a picture of Red Rocks on the ticket. And you tore the ticket, and there was an ultraviolet line in the middle of the tear that you could see. And they would know what Red Rocks was to forge it. At the time, per capita income of Jamaica was $143 a year. And tickets for the show were $150 for the three nights, $50 a night. So we basically put it on a show in their backyard that they can't afford, which made a lot of antagonism and... It just was set up so odd. Putting the stage up, you're working with Jamaican stagehands, and these aren't union guys. See how fast they can work and then go play golf. They're going to make it last as long as they can. They're getting fed. And so what should take two days to put up the stage, well, you know, we need this other guy has got that screwdriver that we don't have. It took so long to do anything. And things would happen in those countries. The sound guy would come up to you, and I'm in charge of decibel velocity, uh, uh, you need to get this license. We can't go over a certain decibel, and so I need $300. You pay him, and then 20 minutes later, another guy comes and goes, oh, no, that's the wrong certificate. I'm the sound guy. I need $300. So much graft. The Jamaican police didn't carry guns. We were worried about that, and we were about the crowds. And You know, it was supposed to be these junkets of people coming from the United States that go just for the show, and uh, Americans that were down there in Jamaica holidaying, and place could have held endless people, 40,000, 50,000. It was tough, and the weather was tough, and Tosh was there, and Yellow Man was the biggest thing at the time. Had a song called, Nobody Move, Nobody Gets Hurt. Nobody Move, Nobody Gets Hurt. He was a dundus. He was a albino. And talented and popular, and they had this meeting where the acts, one management person from the act and one person from the act, were going to sit at a big table and decide the order of the show, who was going to play when, what made sense. And it was thought we should have a Jamaican close the show, show respect when in Jamaica. And there was probably an equal number of Jamaican acts as American acts. Yellow Man is like, well, I got the biggest hit now at the time, so of course I close the show. If nobody's really saying anything. Tosh isn't at the meeting. All of a sudden the doors fly open. Tosh runs in with like 40 people in machetes. And he goes up to Yellow Man and says, how you close the show if you're dead? <laughs> you know, of course I closed the show. There wasn't another thing about who was going to close the show. You allude to the fact that the Marley Pavilion was on a peninsula, so there was the concern that people could swim and get into the show. The water was shallow all around it from Montego Bay, and the kids could walk in or swim in. There was a beach on three sides of this peninsula, and the stage is right there at the end, and you couldn't really have enough guys to do this 300 or 400-yard long thing. And so I got the idea. And maybe we should prevent them from swimming in, and how could we do that? And so we bought two dead horses in the marketplace and got them in a boat and took them out and gutted them and chummed the water. 
put the horse blood and the guts and the intestines thrown in you like jaws, you know, and calling in these sharks. Not big sharks, but like the water was like silver with fins and flippers. So the Jamaican police saw us doing that and they weren't psyched. But nobody swam in. <laughs> and we also got in trouble. The Jamaicans were supposed to be our partners 50-50 with the T-shirts. And we were going to have a feline kid and a Jamaican kid in each booth. And the day of the show, the kids came up from down below. And like I said before, they were bootlegging. They already had the T-shirts on. World Jamaican Music Festival, welcome back. So we knew they were selling them. So went down and the Minister of Culture's son was down in town selling them at a booth. We had some guns. We knew that we didn't want to be in a third world country with no guns. And so <laughs> said, listen, this isn't the deal. He was, hey, man, I don't care. This Minister of Culture, so what can you do? Put a gun to his head, got the money and the T-shirts. So at the end of the show, Barry said, you know, the police don't like you, and uh, I got to give you up. So went to jail in Montego Bay. How long? Five days. It was interesting being in jail in a third world country. Freddie Sessler, Keith's guy, got me out. He had lived down there. and I'd seen a lot of prison movies, you know, <laughs> so I knew you had to make friends with a big guy. You, know? you guys in the company divvied up the tours. You didn't want I'm one where there was a lot of wife and baby stuff. You don't want to name names here, but you didn't want to do a Barry Manilow probably. Nothing against the music. You kind of have an image of yourself, rock and roll bouncer, and this is Night at the Pops. We would often do misdirection with the bands. At the end of the show, oftentimes the kids know the progression of the show and knew when the end of the show was, but they would run around outside to get a picture or to get a glimpse of the performer, the artist coming with the Rolling Stones or with the Who, two or 3,000 kids may around the limos. You can't get them through. So they break the mirrors off the car, rock the car, you pound on the top, and you don't know if they're going to hurt them. They might not get out of the way of the car and get crushed or crushed by each other. So I came up with the idea that we'd take the stagehands and put one of the rock and roll jackets on them and put a towel over their head and run them out with security around them and then put the band into one of the panel trucks, right? Put them in a Coke truck. Well, they're not going to be in the Coke truck or the electrical truck for the venue, electrician's truck with no windows and panel and put them in there. And they still do that to this day. And I take credit for that. The first person they came up with, we put Elvis in a Coke truck. Misdirection, you wanted to draw your attention away from the band, not draw attention to yourself. So we went for Perry Manilow. He paged himself to a gate <laughs> at, the, at the airport, which was like, what? You know, get to the gate, there's 300 people there. You toured with the Stones enough, you allude to wife and baby duty. Their babies became young adults. Right. The 70s, maybe early 80s, and Jay Jagger was with a roommate going to college. She wanted a beer. And I said, well, does your dad let you drink beer? And she said, not at home. <laughs> Here's a street fighting man. He doesn't let his daughter have a beer. He's a dad. No, you can't have a beer. What the hell? You're not old enough. So, Keith, you're a career counselor, and you went to veterinary school at CSU, and you've had quite the second half. The veterinary medicine part, our lives aren't one-dimensional, and you can do different things. I've been lucky. I've been like Forrest Gump. I think that the music really was good for me about people skills, how to deal with the public, and there's no difference in whatever business you're dealing with the public. People want to feel they're being taken care of and that you care. Same with comedy. You became a stand-up comedian in 1986. The comedy is great. It's different than veterinary medicine. Nobody's dying. Getting out on a stage is kind of being shot out of a cannon. I can't sing. I'd rather sing than eat. Most people would rather hear me eat. 
You don't have a guitar in front of you or something to hide behind. What's your favorite musician's joke? My brother had a joke, the Grateful Dead, three nights in Las Vegas who did. How is it? And he goes, well, they played three nights and they finished two songs. (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy. That's what I got. (laughs) The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org.